0: All right, go ahead and open up to First Peter five. First Peter five. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to finish First Peter. I just want to pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for your word. That you would see fit to graciously give us this beautiful book full of truth and power. Now, as we come together around your word, may our gaze be fixed fully on you. Not on what happened yesterday, or what may be going on, or what will happen today, later, or what will take place this week, but let us right now focus wholly and completely on you. God, would you give me strength? Would you sustain me by the word of your power? Would you speak to us through the voice of your spirit? Would you make much of yourself through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning? come knowing your word is sufficient for all of life. So regardless of who we are, where we're at, what we're going through, your word is enough. So let us see you today, God. Let us hear from you. And let our lives be radically transformed by the glories of your gospel. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. I pray that you would pray for me. I'm not feeling that good all of a sudden. Um, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. We are finishing 1 Peter this morning. And if you remember 1 Peter is a letter to suffering Christians. It's a letter written to Christians who have been dispersed because of their faith, because of their allegiance to Christ. They've undergone suffering and persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. And Peter is encouraging them, one, to not suffer by remembering who they are in Christ, We flip back to 1 Peter 1. He tells them in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith, And then in chapter two, he tells us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he encourages us by reminding When I say us, I'm talking about those who have trusted in Christ, um, Christians who have surrendered and received Christ for salvation. There's a hope that flows throughout first Peter that those who are not in Christ just cannot know. To be completely honest. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ, then. I pray that what you hear this morning would draw you to his graces. Because this is a hope and this is a foundation that you cannot know outside of him and apart from him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come towards the end of First Peter in chapter 5. And we come to this realization that our final encouragement is that we are to not suffer alone. We are to suffer together. Christians are not made to be alone. We're not created to live in isolation. God creates us for community. And he gives us the greatest community in the church. I know the church is abused. The church is not healthy in a lot of places. But when done God's way... It is a gracious blessing. And so Peter is reminding these individuals that the church is truly. A way that they will be able to cope with the storms and the troubles of life. Obviously, Christ is the foundation, but the church is a gift from God to help the people continue forward. And it's a gracious gift to his people as a means of living life in community together. And as we work through 1 Peter 5, I want us to think about this and to remember this specifically. That it is God's gracious design for his people to be a part of a healthy church. We hear it all the time. People say, I don't need the church. I've got God. I can worship in a boat. Or I can worship in a deer stand. Or I can worship on my job. Or I can... Uh, Yes and no. You can have... Moments of personal worship, but God gave His church for His people to live together, to exist together, to work together for the building of His kingdom, for His glory. And in there we find great joy. And so here in 1 Peter 5, we see Peter giving them a few different aspects of how this is realized in the life of the people. The first is with the leaders of the church. And so he begins in 1 Peter 5, 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter begins this last section with an exhortation, which the whole book is. But he exhorts them by way of elders. So I exhort the elders Among you now, I want to point out something that you need to understand when you see that term elder in scripture. It is synonymous with pastor, overseer or bishop. He is talking about the pastors of the church. And he's doing so in such a way, knowing that the difficulty that the people face falls onto those pastors The elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church need this exhortation from Peter because Peter knows as a fellow elder the weight that they are going to be bearing through the suffering of the people. See, it's the suffering and the persecution of the people will then fall on their leaders, their pastors as they care for their congregations. In a healthy church, the As you hurt, your pastors will hurt. As you weep, your pastors will weep. As you are sick, your pastors will feel and bear that burden. When you rejoice, your pastors get to rejoice. And so Peter is encouraging these leaders as they deal with these Christians who are dealing with so much suffering. He wants them to be encouraged. And I love that Peter says as a fellow elder and a witness he doesn't separate himself, even though he's not currently in this body. This is part of his family. He doesn't see himself as higher or above them, but he's an equal. You see, it's God's design, and this is clear throughout the New Testament, for his church to be governed by a plurality of elders. And sadly, if we look around, we see where we've kind of missed that in Scripture in our day. But God would send out his apostles two by two to plant churches. And once there, they would bring in and select other elders, other pastors to continue leading together. He does refer to himself as... A witness, an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus. So there is a slight distinction between Peter and maybe some of these other elders. And so we kind of ask the question, like, why does he even add that in there? And I think it's this. To show all of us, all the people of God. That even though we may not be eyewitnesses of the sufferings of Christ. We weren't there as Peter was. We are still to be witnesses of Christ and his work nonetheless. And here's the beauty of it. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe it's infallible. We believe it is inerrant. And we believe it's sufficient. In other words, we believe it's God's word to us. And because we believe it's God's word to us, then we can, in essence, be eyewitnesses of the work and the resurrection and The like of Christ, because the Word says so. There is a lot of truth in the old children's song, For the Bible Tells Me So. There is a lot of theological depth there. In a lot of cases, we don't pay attention to that truth anymore. But the Bible must be foundational for all things for us. And He's encouraging these leaders and these people to stand firm. And because we believe the Bible to be God's word and because we can be witnesses of this same good news that Peter is talking about, then we can all hold on to this truth that Even if we're not all elders and all pastors, we are all partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed in the last day. We continue to go and we continue to press and we work for his glory while we look ahead. We look at the end. We've actually seen evidence of that over the last couple of weeks that we work and we live and we exist with eternity in view. And the reason we do that is because no matter the amount of suffering or pain or trials or adversity we may undergo in this life, all of those pale in comparison to the glory that we will be revealed at the last day when we stand before our King, knowing that he has conquered all sin, all death forever. And all will be made new. So what is Peter's encouragement to these leaders of the church? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The pastoral call is one of service to both God and his people. We have looked at the aspect of a shepherd time and time and time again. But just in case you forgot. Let's think about it. Peter is writing 2,000 roughly years ago in the Middle East where shepherding was quite different than it is now here. In what we think of shepherding to be, we think of a shepherd using dogs or elements to drive sheep where he wants them to go. In that time, shepherding was much different The shepherd loved his sheep. He spent time with his sheep. He cared for them. He led them to safety. He led them to water. He prepared a way for them. He led them to rest. And because of that, the sheep trusted their shepherd and they followed the shepherd rather than being driven by their shepherd. He cared for their needs. He he made sure they were fed. He protected them from anything that was happening around them. Likewise, Peter, following the same way of Christ tells the leaders to shepherd the flock of God. There's a beautiful picture here to one of the last conversations of Christ and Peter when he told Peter, feed my lambs, care for my sheep. The pastoral call, is that of a shepherd to lead, to care for, to protect, to feed. And Peter gives a few points about how that looks in the body of Christ. He doesn't really go into the specific details on the roles of a shepherd, but he's talking more to the heart of what the shepherd does how the shepherd carries out those roles. If you want, like, what is the specific role of a pastor or shepherd? You can go to First uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus, and you can see that um, given in detail there. But Peter is talking about the heart here. And he begins by giving a few points. He starts, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. A pastor is to lead Willingly. He should be called and he should be desirous of that service. He should want to serve in response to God's call. When I was discerning a call to ministry, um, one of the most profound pieces of advice that I received, and it's still what I would tell someone discerning that call today if you can do anything else, do it. There's nothing glamorous about being a shepherd. In in shepherding, the shepherds were seen as outcast. Because they lived amongst their sheep. They smelled like their sheep. The call of a pastor is one to serve in such a way that we are not to gain attention to ourselves. We serve as God would have us serve. We lead the way God would have us lead. And so it's not up to us to determine how a church should look and we just do it how we feel like it. You know, the church planning movement of the last 10, 15, 20 years has had a lot of this in it where we, hey, we don't like what's going on over here and over here. We really like this and we like this. So we're going to go plan a church and we're going to do it this way because this is what we like. It's not up to us to do that. What's up to us is to lead and to organize God's church, God's way. According to God's word. And So we exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. We desire to serve. And he goes on, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. A a pastor is not to serve greedily. You don't do it for the attention. You don't do it for the recognition. You don't do it for the money. I can assure you. Now, the flip side of this is we see the dangers of the prosperity gospel where people morph this and they twist this for shameful gain. But the true shepherd of God, the true flock of God is to be led by men who care not for themselves, but for everyone else, for the glory of God. Scripture does clearly teach that a worker deserves his wages, but he doesn't do so to get rich. I don't pastor you so I could raise 63 million dollars for a jet. If I wanted to make a lot of money, if I wanted to get rich, I wouldn't be doing this. And I'm sure that Byron would echo that. don't do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. And the church, when this happens, honors. As it supports its leaders. And lastly, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The pastor has the authority of the word of God by God himself. Our authority comes from God, but it isn't to be lorded over as God. In other words, we are to lead eagerly and graciously as examples to the flock of God. One of the dangers that we see in the megachurch movement is the opposite of this. Where one leader starts to get so much power that they lord that power over anyone and everyone in their midst. And all that does is causes harm to the body of Christ. I love what Sam Storm says, commenting on this. He said, elders elders are to be examples to their flock of humility, self-sacrifice, love for God, passion in worship, generosity, devotion to family, and most of all, obedience to Christ in all things. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, it's interesting because Peter, again, he's talking to suffering Christians and he's talking to them about suffering together as the body, as the church. And he starts with the leaders and he says, I exhort you to I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. The question is, is how does one do this how is one led to do this what is our motivation for serving in this manner the short sunday school answer is jesus see a pastor is simply an under shepherd and jesus is the chief shepherd he is the true and better shepherd and as he serves his people so a pastor serves And at the end of our days, when the chief shepherd appears, verse four, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what he's saying. Because you're it almost seems at face value that he's contradicting himself here. Right? Because he says, you're not to do it compulsively, you're not to do it shamefully, you're not to do it for gain, you're not to do it for domineering, but you're doing it for a crown. This isn't a crown in the terms of you think of it being a crown. It's not a crown of gold filled with jewels. This is not a crown that royalty would get. This is a crown that an athlete would get when he wins a race. And in actually the original language, it refers to the amaranth flower, which is um, a deep red flower that was known to be unfading. And they would take those flowers and they would form them into a wreath. Showing us the symbolism that following Christ and serving Christ faithfully for all of our lives leads to the unfading crown of glory, which is simply rejoicing in the eternal victory of Jesus our King. The blood of Christ will not, cannot be diminished. And if we're to suffer together faithfully as a healthy church of Christ. The elders must shepherd well. But then he begins to turn his attention from the pastors to the people. How are God's people to live as his church? He starts this way, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger. Now, again, original language, that's the masculine. So he's actually talking to the younger men. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He turns his attention not to the entire congregation, but to the young men. Why is that? One commentator I was reading says, this is because naturally young men have a tendency for rebellion and insubordination to church leadership, any leadership, and, and more so than those who are older and more mature. So he turns his attention to those who could um, potentially cause the most problems, but who he also knew could pave the way for the most work. This is why Paul would talk to Timothy the way he would and lead Timothy in the way he led. There's a beauty here in discipleship that he would disciple these young men. So but but what we also see here is not even necessarily the who, because that is important. But we also see the what in, in terms of their actions, how they are to live the young men. Yes, but also all the people exhibiting Humility. Throughout the life of Christ and throughout the ministry of Christ, you see this on display. You see him teaching of humility. And as we see at the end of verse five, there is simply no place for pride in the church of Christ. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who humble themselves receive Grace, this is not saving grace. This is simply the grace of the fruit of the spirit at work in our lives. As we submit to Christ and his rule and his reign, doing it his way, he gives us the grace to be able to focus more and more and more our attention on what it means to strive for holiness. Again, notice how he... Approaches this in verse 6. He says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. Flip over to 2nd. Not 2nd Peter. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is. An extremely familiar passage to us. We read this together a few weeks ago, part of it. Paul writing to the church of Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The God-man had emptied himself of his godness, if you will, and humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility comes from realizing our status before God and then further realizing His grace and salvation. So when we receive the grace of Christ, when we trust Him to save us from sin, we are given the promise that God will exalt us as He did Christ. So think about that. Again, you don't do it under compulsion, but willingly. You don't do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. You're not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. But you're going to receive a crown, an unfading crown. And God is going to exalt you. Okay, so hopefully you held your finger in Philippians 2. Think about this. He's saying he's going to exalt us as he did Christ. How did he exalt Christ? Because of the humility of Christ. Again verse 6. Though who is in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. So as the people of God. We have to lay ourselves down. We first and foremost must serve Christ. Christ. And secondly, we serve God's people. So how do we suffer together? By not looking to our own interest, but looking to the interest of others. By taking on the form of Christ and humbling ourselves, verse 6, Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that then at the proper time he may exalt you. How then do we express this humility in our lives? Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In other words, we are to rest in God's sovereign goodness and exhibit faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, we trust in who Jesus is we trust in what Jesus has done. We trust in the promises of Christ that he is coming again. That he is going to make all things new. That if we surrender to him and we serve him, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. We, we continue to trust in him because he will at the proper time exalt us. If we therefore submit and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God then so, resting completely in his sovereign goodness. And in that moment, we can cast all of our anxieties on him. Because we know he cares for us. A people who are undergoing the most trying times. He reminds them to be humble. Humble. Most of us are probably in a pretty humbled state when we go through the greatest adversities. But we need to be reminded of that truth. And we also need to be reminded that God is sovereign and that God is working all things together for the good of his people. So we must rest in God's sovereign goodness and exhibit faith in him And it is then, verse 8, that we can be sober-minded and be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. By knowing who we are in Christ, by knowing who God is, the sovereign, gracious ruler of all things... We can cast all of our anxieties on Him. We can deliver all of our sufferings to Him knowing that He, our great High Priest, has suffered far greater than anything we could ever think or imagine. And He has done so that we could go to Him and rest in Him and rejoice in Him. And we continue to do that by being sober-minded and being watchful. In other words, we have to have an awareness of who we are We must know the reality of sin in our lives and we must understand the great gift of grace through Christ. And and you might say, but if God has us, which is what we're saying, why should we be watchful? Because you can't resist alone. You can't go through suffering alone. You can't fight temptation alone. You can't live alone. Genesis chapter one. God created and he said it was good. God created, he said it was good. God created, he said it was good. God created, he said it was good. Created, he it was good. He gets to Genesis chapter two and he says, wait. That's not. It was not good that man would be alone. God created us in his image, the image of the triune God, father, son and spirit. We are not made to be alone. And so we must be watchful. We must understand that we need Christ. That we need salvation from Christ. We need Christ's church and we need Christ's word. To make it. And so. As the people of the church, I would have you to know and to remember this. That when you submit to Christ, when you receive Christ, when you trust Christ. You are promised. Complete and utter hope. And that leads us to the hope of the church. How can a pastor shepherd well? How can a pastor. Serve in such a way that would glorify God. When we're so messed up. How can Christians live peaceably amongst one another? How can you live with humility? How can you resist Satan? Because of the hope that we've been promised through Jesus victorious work. See here's the reality for us. Everybody in here. Whether in the past currently. Or in the days ahead. Will face suffering. It may be different for every one of us. But it's suffering nonetheless. And in the very beginning, I said that if you don't know Christ, then you don't have the hope that we're talking about. You don't have the assurance of what I'm about to tell you. And so I would urge you to seek him while he may be found. But people of God, hear this. That the sufferings you face in this life. They are but brief momentary afflictions. There is coming a day. Probably quite sooner than we realize. Where the people of God will stand before God. And realize. The beautiful promises of scripture that were laid before us. And we will experience the beauties of revelation where it says and they will be with me and I will be with them. I will be as their God and I will walk amongst their midst and I behold I am making all things new. We will realize that much sooner than we understand And so Peter is trying to let them understand this, verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. Life is short, guys. It is fleeting. And my hope and my prayer and my desire is that you understand the whole purpose of your being here. Not just here in this moment right now, gathered with God's people, hearing God's word, but I mean existing If you think that you exist for any other reason than God's purposes and God's glory, you are mistaken. You're here for a purpose. You're not here accidentally. Life is short, and He tells them listen, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I hear that. After you have suffered a little while, the sufferings you face in this life are quick. They may seem like they go on and on and on and they may never end, but life is short. In the span of eternity. And after you have suffered for just a little while, if you've continued to live for the glory of my name, understanding that it is my gift of righteousness that has set you free and it is my glory that you are pursuing and it is me who gives you great joy after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish. First Peter chapter one. Blessed to be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He doesn't say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, because of your good works and because of your compassion and because of your humility, you have caused yourself to be born again. No, it is the work of God that has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a what to an inheritance that is imperishable. There is nothing that can tarnish that it is undefiled. It is perfect and it is unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and now he's telling them, listen, that time is coming quicker than you might realize. And so, brothers and sisters, have you, as you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he, the sovereign God of all things, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, who has prepared the way for, before us, who guards us to the day of Christ, it is him who himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Why those four words? Think about. him. He will restore you. He will take what is shattered and make it whole. He will take the utter brokenness of your sin and he will wash it white as snow. He will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves, and that is save you. He will confirm you. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you. Go back up to chapter, verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy. And all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. The individual stones are the people of God and they are being built up as a spiritual house. The church of God, the kingdom of God on top of the living stone. Jesus Christ himself and you are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Your lives which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and you go down to verse Nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once, remember this, this is a reference to Hosea when God called Hosea, the faithful prophet, to marry uh, Gomer, the prostitute, and in and, and, and having their childbearing, she was continuous to hold her to her sin and to her ways. And so he says, all right, one of your children is going to be named not my people. And one of your children are going to be named, not, uh, have not, not received a mercy. But then towards the end of the book of Hosea, God in his graciousness re- re- redeems them. He restores them, right? And so in verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now because of God's work, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, So after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore you himself and he will confirm you as the people of God. And he won't leave you alone, but he will give you the strength, the strength that surpasses all understanding. And that is the strength in knowing that Christ is the living stone that I stand upon. And he will establish you. He will establish you as his he will establish you as part of his kingdom and he is establishing you as part of his eternal kingdom in glory because of his work, which can not be. Diminished. Folks, that's what he means by exalt in verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. How? By restoring you, confirming you strengthening you and establishing you. So then. The hope of the church is Christ. And it's because of this promised hope that we give him glory. Verse 11 to him, Jesus. Be the glory, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, there is no greater peace, there is no greater joy, there is no greater hope than that, that it's God. That's why Peter started, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not probably the typical way you would start an encouraging letter to people who are dying, who have been separated from their families, from their homes for following Jesus, blessed be God. Your life is terrible, but blessed be God. You're suffering mightily, but blessed be God. There's no greater hope than that. None. And he closes with an encouragement. The encouragement of the church. It's always weird preaching the very end of a letter. Because he's got these different people and things going on. But I want us to see two things primarily in these last three verses. Peter shows us two things. There's greeting. And there's encouragement. So he gives regards to Sylvanius. By Sylvanius, a brother, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Hey, if you'll take that little side notch and just barely bump it down, it'll quit doing that. There you go. Maybe it won't. I mean, if it does now, I just don't even have an answer. But that's been our trick of the trade for a while. So he's talking to who is who's, Who is this? If you're not reading the ESV, you might be reading a translation that says Silas. This is Silas who worked with Paul, who worked with the other apostles, who faithfully served the people of God. He's the one who would have delivered the letter to the people that Peter was sending it to. And then he goes then from Sylvanus, who was a faithful brother, who was going to deliver the letter. Possibly preach the letter. Could you imagine? Let's Let's just take a break. Could you imagine being a part of a church that's going through hell? And Silas shows up who you know to be a faithful servant of the Most High God. And he brings this letter from Peter. Peter. At this point, Peter wasn't the black eye, the sore thumb. This is the man who was leading an absolute revolution in the Christian church. And Silas stands up and he begins... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Venus stands and he begins to preach and he begins to declare this truth. But he also mentions in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now, there are a lot of people who try to twist this in an odd way and say this is Peter's wife. Um, This is not Peter's wife. This is the church in Rome. Um, Oftentimes, because of the severe persecution, they would code word Rome as Babylon for Clear reasons if you look through the Old Testament. But she is the reference to the church who is at Rome. Which makes a lot of sense. So he's acknowledging them from these other Christians. She who is at Babylon. The church who is in Rome. Who is likewise chosen. Remember earlier he said you are chosen race. A royal priesthood. So, So these brothers and sisters who are likewise chosen. They send you greetings. In other words, they want you to be encouraged to. Fight the good fight of faith. He says, so does Mark, my son. This is likely Mark, the apostle who had worked with Peter and the other apostles. And 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 it's interesting because Mark, you know, I mean, it's not like Peter was chosen. And then many, many, many years later, Mark was chosen. They were chosen around the same time frame. Right. But but Peter is kind of the one that God just pushed as being the leader of that group. And so. This again points to how much he would have even, as he was being discipled by Christ, was discipling others. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. So it's clear that these are individuals, are, are people that were instrumental in the gospel, yes, but also that the recipients of these letter would have, would have been familiar with because it would have been encouraging for them to hear that Sylvanus was coming, that, that Mark was doing well and that the church in Rome was okay. And he leaves them with this encouragement, which is ultimately the purpose of the letter. To encourage these brothers and sisters to what? Verse 12, stand firm in the true grace of God. He doesn't say stand firm on your abilities. He doesn't say fight well. He doesn't say be prepared. Stand firm on the true grace of God. Friends, it is grace that saves and it is grace that assures And the message for these Christians was to stand firm. To suffer together. Arm and arm as the body of Christ. And the message for us is the same. Suffer together. Both through and by the glorious work, the goodness and the kindness of God in Christ. We need one another to carry out the mission of God. Our Father. May we be encouraged by. Your word. That although our sufferings and our times may be different. The call is still very much the same. To stand firm on the true grace of God. God, will you move in the hearts of those who are here this morning who have never truly received the grace of Christ. That they may see that there is hope in you. And may you strengthen our faith. And may you solidify our bonds together good news